you. Uh, I made the joke uh, in the first service, and since Mike made some of the same jokes in the first service, I'm allowed to make it again, uh, that um, he asked me uh, how he should introduce me, and I told him it doesn't matter, and now I've learned my mistake and not prompting him on what specifically to say. <laughs> Uh, but thank you. We're, we're, my family and I are thrilled to be worshiping with you this morning. Uh, let's turn our attention to the Word of God. John chapter 3, verses 1 through 15. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, Unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you of earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. The grass wither and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Have you ever noticed the amount of metaphors we use in our language? Or maybe, have you noticed how much our language is metaphor? And what I mean by metaphor, metaphor is this idea where we take one word or concept and we apply it to another word or concept in a way that's not literal. And so what happens is we'll take concrete ideas, usually, things we can see and touch and hold on to. And we'll use those concrete expressions to talk about immaterial, intangible things. So we've got a lot of metaphors that maybe you've not noticed before, but you use every day. One being that, you know, we talk about our life as a journey. And in these phrases, you see where we're using these concrete expressions to talk about life, something we can't hold on to. So everyone here in this room is following their own path. You know, many of us feel like we're running a race. Maybe you're walking a long and winding road. These are all metaphors, right? The direct, we talk about the direction our life is heading. We talk about where we are going in life. We use something we know walking down a path. And from my understanding, something that 
Those of us in this room know very well, if you've lived here long enough, walking down a path leads us to understand concepts of life. You have, you have other metaphors, expressions that you use every day. Uh, one that some of the people may, may connect with more than others is the idea that time is money, right? It's not just a societal proverb that we think of time as money, but the way that we talk about time, we use words that apply to money. So how do you spend your time? You know, we, we can do things that save time. We can talk about budgeting our time well. These are all ideas that are concrete, tangible, but, but we use them to uh, understand and define the intangible and material. We do this a lot when it comes to emotions. Uh, many people today might be here and they might be feeling down. The emotion is a direction. Down is bad. Or you might be feeling pretty up this morning. Up is good. Or you might be all over the place. Uh, the point is, is that these, these concepts are everywhere in our language, but they're not just everywhere in our language. It's how we think. Our very thoughts are connected through metaphor. And so it shouldn't be a surprise to us that when we come to the Scriptures and when we see Jesus teaching Nicodemus and teaching you and me, he uses metaphors to do it. This passage talks about metaphors uh, like birth and rebirth. Talks about the metaphors of light and dark. Talks about, it's somewhat of a metaphor of, of the spirit and the wind. That, that passage there, if you, if you reread that passage, the same word for spirit is the exact word for wind. And Jesus uses it to express this, this big idea. We're not going to dive deeply into it. But the spirit blows where the spirit wills and you do not know where it goes or it comes from. And then he talks about being born of the spirit. It's the same word. He's using wind as an idea to express or a way, a channel for us to understand these complex, eternal realities. And I think what happens is often, like Nicodemus, you and I can be tempted to stay at the concrete. Maybe we're coming to the scripture with our own understanding, but we stay at the concrete and Jesus opens our eyes to these huge and, and sometimes incomprehensible to some level, but bigger expressions of eternal realities. And he uses metaphors to do it. He uses metaphors to teach Nicodemus and us how to understand heavenly realities of God. If you've been with Christ Church for the past week, excuse me, a few weeks, you've seen a lot of these metaphors already. Now, we may not have used the word, but think about the very beginning of this gospel. For those of you who were here, the gospel opens with this beautiful and poetic line, words, a couple of sentences. I'll read the first few. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and the light, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and darkness has overcome it. So you have this concept of word, but it's bigger than just a word, right? He's talking about Christ. And so he's using the word for us to understand some aspect of Christ. And then yet he ties, the th thematically he's tying Jesus as God. But you also have the concept of light and darkness. 
You see, in this passage, you also see themes that John begins to weave throughout the entire book. And these other themes appear very poetically throughout the whole, the whole book. So you've got the theme of Jesus' life. How can a person be life? You've got the theme of eternal life. Jesus is not only life. In him, we find life, and it's the light of men. All of these themes, all of these metaphors appear in our passage today. And so what we're going to do is we're going to turn our attention to John 3 and see how these concrete ideas help us understand eternal, intangible realities. We're going to do this in three steps, three three parts, if you will. The first part, we're going to see that Jesus meets with Nicodemus. And he also meets with his people. That's the first step. Then we're going to turn and we're going to see that Jesus knows Nicodemus. So the second step, we're going to think about what does it mean for Jesus to know Nicodemus and know us. And thirdly, Jesus saves Nicodemus and he saves his people. Now, to alleviate any concerns of time, uh, if we are 20 minutes in and I'm still on point one, that's intentional. You don't have to worry. We're, we're going to spend most of our time in point one. So first, notice that Jesus meets with Nicodemus. Now, this may be, at one point, the most obvious. You're thinking, of course, you know, obviously, that's what the passage is telling us. Nicodemus came to see Jesus. But it's not as obvious once you start digging into the background on all this and seeing who Nicodemus is and how John's presenting him. Uh, For one, who Nicodemus is, John gives him not just as a person, but as a paradigm, a type for us to understand. And so Nicodemus is bigger than a person. He's a type, but he's not a type in the sense that he was fictitious. You know, John made him up. No, what John is doing, he's using a very real person and a very real experience to show us a lesson. And you see that when you look how he's introduced. And so at the end of of chapter 2, for those of you with the Bible, you can turn back and and read the very last verses with me. For those of you without a Bible, I'll read it here. The end of chapter 2. You see, Jesus was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast. Many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. So that hints forward to Nicodemus, right? We know you are doing signs. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man. For he himself, that's Jesus, knew what was in man. And what this is, is this is a universal, right? This is John telling us about Jesus. Jesus did not entrust himself because he knew all people and he knew what was in man. That's really neat. I talked about the poetic use of John. If you read that passage, the way, it's hard to communicate in English, but the way it's introduced is really fantastic. Jesus knew what it was in man and it was a man from the Pharisees, Nicodemus. What he's doing is he's taking us from universal to specific. And so we see Nicodemus as a paradigm. So this meeting between Jesus and Nicodemus isn't just about, hey, this cool thing happened, let me tell you about it. It's about you and it's about me. But there's more than that. There's more than Jesus meeting with Nicodemus. It's, It's not only is Nicodemus a paradigm for us, that this meeting itself is complicated because Nicodemus, for one, is a Pharisee. And if you were here last week, you heard of Jesus' relationship with the Pharisees already isn't off to the best start. Last week, the passage talked about how Jesus went into the temple where that's where the Pharisees would have held camp. 
and he flipped over money tables. He made a whip and chased people out. So when you see then a Pharisee coming to Jesus, we're on high alert. Like, what's going on? This isn't a normal meeting. And yet Jesus is meeting with him. But there's an even larger, more obvious challenge in this meeting. And it's the fact that Nicodemus doesn't even come in a straightforward way. He comes at night. And here's where we get into some of those metaphors, some of that, that concept of things that we know and see and touch showing us these larger realities. Uh, remember, John's already introduced us to this in the very first beginning of his, his gospel. He tells us that in Jesus was light and that life was life. Light was life. He goes on a little bit later to talk about how the children of light are those who become children of God. And so John's already set up this dichotomy, this, this two oppositions of you have light on one side and you have dark on the other side. Light being good, dark being bad. And Nicodemus is coming in the dark. Now we can't say definitively you know, what Nicodemus's intentions are, but we can look and see what John is showing us through that. And I think that there's a few reasons why he's portrayed as coming in the dark. I think it's because, and again, going back to John's repeated use of light and dark, it's because Nicodemus is coming to Jesus in fear and most likely shame and certainly skepticism. And we're going to talk about a few of these. We're specifically going to talk about shame and skepticism. Right? Nicodemus doesn't come in the day where, you know, if we were in the crowd, we would see him. You know, he doesn't come in the day where, you know, if, if somebody saw him, what might they think of him meeting with Jesus? He is ashamed in some sense to be present with Jesus in the light of truth, in the light of day, in the light of virtue. And so he comes at night. So let's talk for a minute about shame. How do you and I see shame today? Well, I think if you look around, you're very likely to see it, uh, though you may not recognize it as shame or label it as shame. Um, I think of, of our trip here. My family and I came here this weekend from Louisville, Kentucky. That's a long way. And so when we came, we come with our children, and sometimes our children don't act in the way that we want them to act. I'm sure that doesn't happen here. Um, but think of, think of the hard examples when that happens. Think of see, when you see a parent whose child is just having a nuclear meltdown. And what are, is that parent and what is that child experiencing in that moment when they want nothing more than to be out of that situation or they want to take their child into a different room to have that experience so they won't be seen in their shame? You know, we see shame like that. But you also see shame at a, at a more intentional, a more direct level. I think in our culture, one of the ways that I've seen it uh, that if you'd pardon the, the terrible joke, is shameful, is that we see groups that are willing to go after individuals and other people and to bring, direct them to shame for their own purposes. So you might see it as a, one political group versus another political group, and they're going to start a campaign to tell everybody about how bad that other group is. And what are they trying to do? They're trying to shame that group. They're trying to shame them into different actions. So we see it at the family level, you see it at the political level, but you also see it inside when you turn around and turn and look at yourself. I think anyone here uh, is, is, would probably admit that they have experienced their own 
lifetimes worth of shame. This is something that, that I experienced, that we all experience as part of our humanity. One author uh, says about shame that no word or topic sends people hiding more readily than shame. It is the broodless, merciless killer of all joy in our lives. Another author describes shame as the emotional weapon that evil uses to corrupt our relationships with God and with one another and to disintegrate any and all gifts of vocational vision or creativity. Shame is that intensely painful feeling or experience of believing that we are unworthy of love and belonging because of something we've experienced, something we've done, something we failed to do, and that that makes us unworthy of connection with one another. Nicodemus came to Jesus in the dark, perhaps because of his own shame. He wasn't bold enough to come in the light of the day, and yet Jesus meets with him. Jesus meets with him face to face. And our friends, this morning, I want you to know that the gospel is a powerful remedy for shame. Jesus Christ is not afraid of your shame. He's not afraid of your darkness. That, that lie that would tell us that we are unworthy because of something we've done or experienced, Jesus will meet with you in full knowledge of all of that. He's not standing at the distance like a detached father in disappointment. He is ready and willing to meet with you even in the dark. But shame isn't the only factor here. A little more obvious from the text is that Nicodemus comes with skepticism, right? Nicodemus is bringing to Jesus more than a healthy dose of skepticism. The conversation starts out politely enough, right? Nicodemus says, oh, Jesus, we know, we know. We know that you're a teacher. You've come from God. We've seen the signs. And, you know, no one's able to do these signs unless God is with him. But Jesus confronts Nicodemus' confidence, essentially going, saying to him, you think you know me? You think you know who's with God? You can't even see the kingdom of God unless you're born again. And Nicodemus responds in a way that would make any modern-day skeptic proud. Oh, come on. Jesus, born again? Who can crawl up in their mother's womb and be born a second time? Like, no way. This is skepticism. Now, it's interesting. What's happening, in one sense, is Nicodemus is missing the metaphor. And so that phrase, born again, is in itself, it's, it's a metaphor. It's a metaphor in a way that we might not expect. So born again... The, if you were to take a literal reading, a, a more literal, more word-for-word reading, it's born from above. And it's this idea, born from above in that language meant born again. And it's like the expression that we have, hey, take it from the top. Take it from the top means start over again. So born from above means born a second time. And so Nicodemus in his skepticism is missing the metaphor He's, he's not understanding that Jesus is perhaps has a double meaning here. Unless someone is born from above, he can't even see the kingdom of God. And that, that concrete, staying at the concrete level, is due to his skepticism. When confronted with something that Nicodemus doesn't understand, he immediately adopts a posture of skepticism. How in the world is this going to happen? 
So knowing that Nicodemus is a paradigm, knowing that he's more than just an individual, but in some ways he's an example for us, what do we, what do, we do with this? What do we think of skepticism? Well, on the one hand, skepticism can actually be a healthy thing. You see this reflected in a German reformer named Johannes Brentz when he's talking about Nicodemus. He's talking about this passage. He says, uh, Nicodemus is an earnest, sincere seeker. He is polite. He's sincere. He did not meet Christ to put up an argument or maliciously test him or to craftily catch him in his words, but to learn the true way of being made righteous. And Jesus doesn't dismiss him, does he? He invites him into conversation. Jesus meets and dialogues with him. And I hope that's an encouragement to you. It's an encouragement to me that there's a sense in which my skepticism and my questions and my concerns can be taken to Jesus. He's not afraid of them. You might have experienced times where you have questions that maybe, maybe it's your parents. You think you're afraid to ask your parents certain questions. Maybe it's in the church. Maybe there are certain questions that you feel. You feel at the core of your being, but you're afraid to ask your pastor or your elder or your friends in the faith community. I want you to know that Jesus is not afraid of your questions. He is not afraid of it. He meets with Nicodemus, even in his skepticism. But now, notice, and we'll go on to talk about this more, he doesn't give Nicodemus the answer he's looking for. So it's not that his, his questions are answered in the way he expected, but Jesus is not afraid of questioning. And so I think another way to think about how this, what this passage teaches us about skepticism is to know that it can go awry. It can go wrong. In our American culture, and even within the smaller circle of Christian evangelicalism, you have seen skepticism pop up in ways that are harmful. I read an article a few weeks ago about a, a husband and a wife who were Christian worship leaders. Even more, they, they moved to a new part of the country to start a church and were church planters. And they were coming out of a long background of being uh, raised in the faith in the church. And then at some point they realized, hey, we need to question some of these things that we believe. And this, this article went on to describe at how they began questioning everything. And it describes, and, and some, of the, some of the article was written as an interview with the wife and described how that became their guide. Skepticism became their guide, and it led them to a very unhealthy place. In my own field, uh, I'm finishing a PhD, and um, in, I'm, I'm working in Old Testament. And you see, this is a very common theme in conservative evangelicals going to uh, Old Testament studies at a rigorously deep academic level and coming away as leaving the faith. And what happens in so many of those, in, in the ones that I know of and the ones that I know of from afar, is what happens is skepticism has become their guide. They began questioning and they put the questions over everything else. And so I think what, that show, what we, we learn from that is we see uh, when that's happened is a mi- misappropriation of what skepticism is and what it's supposed to do. And I think this passage can show us that and can teach us how to be a healthy questioner, a healthy skeptic, if you would. And I think some of the ways that it goes awry and it can lead us to a destructive place is first when we assume too much of ourselves. If we think we can be the infallible 
judge of what's right and what's wrong, we have placed skepticism in an unhealthy place. Right? There's a sense you get almost that urge from Nicodemus. He's questioning Jesus. How in the world can this, what you're talking about is, is insane. It can't happen like that. And if he thinks that he is the arbiter of truth over the God who made all truth, then he's going to go awry. John Calvin takes this view of Nicodemus. He says Nicodemus comes to Jesus with a foolish opinion of his own knowledge. He thinks he's the one that can decipher right, wrong, good, bad, heaven, and earth. But I think skepticism, uh, it turns unhealthy when we elevate it to a place it was never intended to be and elevate it to a place of virtue. And what I mean by this is that we, if we place questioning as our guide, it's only going to lead us to more questions. It's only going to lead us to a place of doubt and unknowing. And you see this in Nicodemus in a way. Nicodemus starts off in verse 2, and he, says, he tells Jesus what he knows. And as the conversation goes on, at the end of verse 9, Nicodemus is an unknower. He's looking at Jesus completely stupefied, saying, how can these things be? And so, in a sense, his questions has led him to a place of doubt. But he does one thing right, and he takes, he does several things right, but in this, in this area, he takes his skepticism, his questions, to Jesus. That's where they go. So even though he comes at night, even though he's not convinced, he takes his questions, the ultimate source of truth, the one who, through whom all things were made, and the one whom is light. And notice, what's Jesus' response? Jesus meets with Nicodemus. He's not afraid of your darkness. He's not afraid of your shame. He's not afraid of fear, of your doubt. He's certainly not afraid of your skepticism. Jesus is willing to meet with Nicodemus. He's able to meet with us. But he doesn't just meet with us for the sake of meeting. He doesn't meet with us just to be present. It's not some pseudo-psychological affirmation. You know, if I meet with you and I affirm you, that's the path to healing. You know, we even see that in some Christian self-help writing where really we just all need to be heard. We need to be ourselves. We need to be met with where we are. But that's not quite the example that Jesus shows us here. He not only meets with us, is he knows us. Jesus knows his people. So whereas Nicodemus comes to him and he, he comes with Jesus to what he knows, Jesus is not content to mirror back Nicodemus' concerns. At every step in the conversation, Jesus takes it deeper and deeper and probes into the heart of Nicodemus, revealing that he knows Nicodemus. This is the one who knows all humanity. He knows Nicodemus. And again, you see that through that progression, right? First, Nicodemus is seeing signs and Jesus takes him to, well, let's talk about entering or seeing the kingdom of heaven. And then Nicodemus in a little more bewilderment, how can that happen? And Jesus says, oh, if you think seeing the kingdom is difficult, wait till we talk about entering the kingdom of heaven. And then Nicodemus is blown away, like, I don't know how any of this happens. And Jesus ramps it up even farther to talk about ascending and descending from the throne of heaven and finally to eternal life. He knows what Nicodemus needs, even if Nicodemus hasn't asked him. And we've seen this before. You saw it 
If you were here at the, the wedding in Cana of Galilee, uh, right, there Jesus' mother comes to him and points out, hey, uh, there's, there's not any wine. We ran out of wine. And that is an implicit request. And Jesus knows what her true motives are. And, and in some sense, the wording there points to it being bigger than just, hey, she wants him to make more wine. She wants him to reveal himself in a way. But more obviously than that, you see Jesus knowing people in the next chapter. So if you come back in a few weeks, you'll hear about a Samaritan woman at a well. And the Samaritan woman starts having a conversation with Jesus. She essentially tries to deceive him. And he starts going deep with her and telling her things that she had no idea he knew. And at the end, so much so, that at the end of that passage, she runs immediately away, tells all her neighbors, come see a man who told me everything I'd ever done. Jesus knows his people. He knows their intentions. He sees through the surface to the depth. And so, as Augustine uh, put it, when we think about Nicodemus coming to Jesus, talking about one thing, but Jesus knowing what he ultimately needs, it, Augustine describes it this way, is that the man, Nicodemus, was puffed up with his mastery, and it appeared of some importance to him that he was a teacher of the Jews. And Jesus pulls down his pride so that he might be born of the Spirit. Jesus knows what's on the outside. He sees when we come in the dark. He knows our darkness. He knows our fears, our shame, our skepticism. He knows all of that. And it's not just what we perceive on the outside. It's our intentions and our needs. He knows you. He knows you deeply. He doesn't just know you. And he isn't content just to meet with you. Jesus was sent to save you. And so as we look at the last verses of this section, and we see verses 10 through 15, Paul points us to this picture. Or not Paul, John. John points us to this picture, and he says, if I have told you, Jesus is Jesus talking to Nicodemus, if I have told you of earthly things, and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you of heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. He's talking about himself, Jesus, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Jesus is leading Nicodemus to his ultimate need. Now that, that concept that he uses there, that allusion back to a previous story about the uh, Moses lifting up the serpent in the wilderness comes to us from Numbers 21. And this is a story of Israel and their wilderness journey after their exodus from Egypt. They're wandering through the wilderness. And it's, it's short enough that I'll read it here. It's from Mount Hor, they set out by the way of the Red, to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses saying, why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there's no food and no water. And we loathe this worthless food. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, we have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he might take away these serpents from us. So Moses prayed for his people, and the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. And anyone who's bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent 
and he set it up on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at it and he would live. And this is a story of salvation, isn't it? This is the story of our salvation. It's the story of a people who have a God who has given them wonderful good things. As I look out in the windows behind us and see the beauty and the sunshine, it's reminding me of how beautiful and wonderful this place is. The Lord has given it to us. And this is just one example of a beautiful and good thing. And these people, having been given beautiful and good things, look to God with impatience and anger, and they sin against him, just like I do, just like we do. So God sends judgment to them. And in this case, judgment was in the, sense, in the, the uh, form of fiery serpents who would bite them, they would die. And when they repent, when they ask for mercy, when they look to the Lord, he gives them a visible sign. He gives them a metaphor of a bronze serpent to look up on a pole and they're healed. And he does this because he knows what they need and God loves to save his people. And so Nicodemus needed to be born again. He needed to be born from above. Not born of flesh, not by the will of man, but born from the Spirit. Augustine again tells us that spiritual birth happens when human beings, being earthly, become heavenly. And this can only happen when they are made members of Jesus Christ. Nicodemus comes looking for signs and leaves in utter bewilderment, confronted with what he truly needs. He needs to look at the Son of Man, who, like the serpent raised on the pole, will be raised on a cross. He is the only one who is able to fulfill Nicodemus' needs. He is the one who knows Nicodemus, who is willing to meet with Nicodemus and can fulfill his needs. And this is the last metaphor of the passage that we'll talk about today. Because it's this beautiful picture of Jesus being lifted up on a cross. And the metaphor in the original language is when we talk about something being lifted up, that's the way that they would say to glorify something. So we have the word for glorification, and we can talk about giving glory to something. And they might use the phrase to lift something up. And so this is remarkable picture of the Son of Man is going to be lifted up, and he's going to be lifted up to save his people. And in doing so, on the cross, he's going to be glorified. He's going to do it so that his children might also be lifted up to glory. My prayer is that the story of Nicodemus would be our story. That would be your story. And you know, it's interesting to look at the rest of the Gospel of John. You see how the type plays out, how the example plays out. Here, Nicodemus leaves in bewilderment. And if you come next week, Nathaniel, I believe, is going to be preaching on what that looks like. What does it look like to be born again? Why did God do this thing? And, and there's more conversation of light and dark. And it's, there's reasons there. But right now, what I want you to see is that is our need. Our need is to look to Christ. And Nicodemus does. Because you see Nicodemus two more times in the Gospel of John. You see him once in chapter 7. And there, the Pharisees are debating what they should do with Jesus. And they kind of trump up some charges against him. And Nicodemus is kind of this middle figure. He's like, well, you know, hold on, guys. Doesn't he deserve a fair trial? And that's it. That's the only thing he says. 
And then the story goes on. But then, beautifully, wonderfully, in the end of the book, after Jesus has been lifted up, he's been taken down, Nicodemus comes with Joseph of Arimathea to bury the body of Jesus, and he brings 75 pounds of myrrh and aloe to do it because Nicodemus has seen his Savior lifted up, and he has come from darkness into light, and he has become a child of God. So my prayer is that we would all be like Nicodemus. No matter any shame that we feel, no matter any questions that we have, no matter if we are in a dark place right now, I want you to know Jesus will meet with you. And Jesus knows you. And he has come to save you. And he will, if you go to him, if you take all of your shame, all of your doubt, all of your fear, all of your questions, and take it to him. Take it to him by going to him in prayer, through study of the word, through joining his body and becoming a part of the body of Christ on earth. Go to Jesus and he will save you. Would you pray with me this morning? Lord, we know that you are an eternal God and that you are outside of our ability to understand you. And we thank you, Lord, that you give us pictures into who you are and pictures into what you have done, even by using things that we can see and touch and hold and know, using light and dark, using birth using the spirit and the wind. These are all pictures that point us to the heavenly realities of what you have done, of who you are, what you have done in Christ for us. So we pray this morning, Lord, that we, your children, that we would come to you, that we would meet with you because you are willing to meet with us. That even though you know our darkest place, you know all of our shame, you know all of our skepticism. You know all of our fear and our doubt and our sin. You are willing to meet us there. And you are willing to save us. We pray, Lord, that you would remind us of that good news and show us, teach us, Holy Spirit, what that means for the rest of our lives. Our lives that walk out in hope and joy and walking out into newness of life in the light of that good news. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.